0: This Sports MedCast. I'm your host, Dr. Devin McFadden, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Rachel Lampert, professor of cardiology and electrophysiology at Yale University. We'd also like to thank the BJSM for their assistance in producing and distributing this episode. Dr. Lampert, thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you.
1: Yeah, thanks you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the uh, to the podcast.
0: So the topic today is going to be sudden cardiac death and some of the research you've done in actually some of the athletes that we typically would have disqualified who have gone on to play. But to start out with, can you discuss with the, the audience kind of your background and what led to your interest in this topic?
1: Well, yes. Yeah. So I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist. I take care of patients with arrhythmia problems, uh, defibrillators, pacemakers, et cetera. And my interest in this question actually started with a patient, um, a young man who had a cardiac arrest and uh, got a defibrillator for, he had a, a cardiomyopathy, arrhythmogenic type of cardiomyopathy. He, got, he was a competitive bicyclist and speed skater. And I said to him, well, you know, I'm glad we've made this diagnosis and now you've got the defibrillator, but you're going to have to stop doing sports because that's what the guidelines, you know, tell us. That's what the the consensus recommendations from the experts. And this young man who did not have a medical background said to me, well, what's the data? Well, how do you know that I, this is dangerous? And I said, well, you know, we really don't have any data, but, um, you know, that's what the experts think, you know, based on wanting to be cautious and what have you. And uh, so he said to me, well, when you show me the data, I'll stop doing what I'm doing. So that kind of piqued my interest um, in trying to figure out um, really how risky is it for patients with defibrillators. And my own research has uh, started with the defibrillator uh, uh, group. So that really piqued my interest in trying to figure out, um, you know, we we, we knew there were postulated risks of uh, sports participation for patients with defibrillators. So basically the, these, um, this, the, the consensus statement, the, the Bethesda guidelines, the authors postulated would there be an increased risk of arrhythmias? Do we know whether the defibrillator would work in the setting of, um, of sports? Because we know that in general, defibrillators work really well, but things are different during sports. Uh, pH is different, catecholamines are different, acid base, um, potassium, et cetera. And so we really don't know whether the defibrillator would be equally efficacious. And then also, you know, what about injury? I mean, you can picture someone goes up for a jump shot and the defibrillator goes off and they fall, and they fall on someone else and everyone gets injured. So these were the postulated risks, but we really had no idea whether they were um, actually going to happen to anyone or what was the magnitude of these postulated risks. So in order to start to try to sort this out for the defibrillator patients, um, we started by, with doing a survey of members of the Heart Rhythm Society, and I worked with two other EPs, um, Dr. Brian Olshansky from Iowa and David Canham from Los Angeles, and we sent a survey around to our colleagues at the Heart Rhythm Society, and we asked them, do you have any patients in your practice with defibrillators, and if so, how are they doing? Have they had any problems? And uh, basically, what we found from that survey was that most of the physicians reported that they did have at least one patient doing some sort of sports, um, some competitive, some contact sports, and there were not a lot of um, adverse events reported or really no adverse events reported of the types that had been um, suggested as potential concerns. And so... A survey like this is obviously not definitive. Um, You've got uh, biases and recalls, who decides to to answer the survey, what they remember. But it did suggest that uh, patients were out there doing sports with their defibrillators anyway, regardless of whatever the guidelines said. And so we could then, it, it told us that doing a prospective registry would be, first of all, feasible because people were out there doing it. And it would be ethical because we wouldn't be asking people to do things they weren't already doing. And finally, it would be necessary because these people were out there doing it. And if uh, it was not safe, we needed to get those people the data. And if it was safe, maybe there would be more people that would want to do sports. So basically, we then launched a um, prospective study called the ICD Sports Safety Registry. And uh, we enrolled, uh, in the end, 440 people who were had uh, received defibrillators and continued to compete Um, in some form of athletic activity and we defined competition fairly broadly but they did have to compete against others in some fashion and so we had uh, people from age 8 to 60 and about a quarter of them were children under 18 and about there were about 77 who were very high level athletes which we defined as people who were either in high school or college um, competing you know on varsity and jv type teams and so we followed them for over four years and uh we found i'm sorry we followed them for four years and we found that there were no instances of either of these um endpoints that people were so concerned about so there were arrhythmias that ventricular arrhythmias that occurred during sports um there were also uh NSV, inappropriate shocks for nsvt for noise and there were people who had plenty of arrhythmias during rest as well but there were dif- there were um arrhythmias during sports but these uh, hypothesized risks did not actually occur. So in our population, we did not see any episodes of the defibrillator not working, and we didn't see any incidences of injury caused either by the defibrillator going off or the person passing out or anything like that. So what that told us was that, uh, you know, it looked like many athletes could participate in sports uh, safely with defibrillators. and. Um, we were quite pleased to when um, the next uh, version of the guidelines came out, which was the uh, 2015 AHA-ACC eligibility um, recommendations, that sports participation with a defibrillator was no longer considered completely restricted, but rather something that could be considered. And so I think that really um, changed the way we think about sports participation for this group of people.
0: That's incredible. Over 400 patients, and you said no adverse events or deaths caused by arrhythmia in, in that population over a period exactly. of four years.
1: Yeah. So we had no deaths caused by arrhythmia related in any way to sports. We did have okay. one person who died an arrhythmic death, but he was like at his desk job, just at work, and you know he had a bunch of shocks and then um, uh, was not uh, resuscitated. But there were no, not, not, nothing like that happened during sports or related to sports in any way.
0: Wow. Now, would you mind just reviewing for us the the causes of sudden cardiac death? Obviously, there are many, but just kind of the the main ones, and talk about the ones that the majority of your study population involved.
1: Okay. So um, there's a number of types of diseases that cause sudden death in young people, and they can be, for the most part, divided into two groups. There are cardiomyopathies, um, uh, diseases of the heart muscle itself, which would, the most common of those would be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And then arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, ARVC, um, would be number two on that. And then there are other various cardiomyopathies. And then the second group of diseases is the purely electrical diseases the channelopathies uh, the most common of which is long qt Um, others include um, cpvt or catecholaminergic polymorphic vt and then there's the brugada syndrome and then there's a few others as well so those are really the main um, etiologies of sudden death in the athlete and young people in general and um, you bring up a very important point which is that our study showed that the icd worked Um, In all of these patients, no one had any, um, no one died of an arrhythmia uh, again related to sports. Um, There are other considerations though, um, depending on the disease process. So, in thinking about um, who was in our study, again the most common etiology was the long QT syndrome, and I think we can feel pretty comfortable that uh, for these patients, the defibrillator is going to work, um, and there there will not be other types of issues going on. There are other channelopathies as well. One of these is called CPVT. CPVT is a little bit different type of disease where catecholamines themselves are very proarrhythmic. And in general, while the defibrillator works very well for almost every electrical or uh, arrhythmogenic disease that we have, CPVT may be a bit of an exception to that rule because what can happen in CPVT is that if a person gets a shock, the catecholamines from the shock itself worsen the condition, so they get more arrhythmias, more shock, and, and um, the defibrillator is less ef- uh, can be less effective. Now, there are uh, there's one small series of patients who had CPVT. Some did, some didn't have defibrillators. This is from Mike Ackerman's group at the Mayo Clinic, and they were treated uh, pharmacologically appropriately with beta blockers and/or flecainide, a 1C antiarrhythmic that's very effective in that disease, and that group did okay continuing to participate in sports it was a very small series though and i think you uh if you're if you have a patient with with uh, cpvt you, you they really need to make sure that they're seen by someone who's a specialist in that disease um before thinking about letting them play regardless of whether they have a defibrillator now the, with the other channelopathies, brigada syndrome is um, not particularly related to catecholamines and those patients can probably play safely with a defibrillator. Um, For all of these patients, there are things to consider, precautions to take if they're going to be playing. So you need to make sure they're well hydrated, that they don't get overheated, they're not taking medications that exacerbate the condition. Um, And it's a good idea in general to have a a channelopathy type of specialist or uh, someone who sees a lot of these patients on board um, if those patients are going to be going back to sports. On the cardiomyopathy side, you know, let me just stick with the channelopathies in general, just to d- digress a little bit. My study concerned defibrillators, but um, not all patients that have these diseases get defibrillators. Some, there's risk assessment processes determining who's at highest risk. And some lower risk patients might just be treated with medicines and not get defibrillators. There are some retrospective series that have shown that those um, people can also participate safely as long as they are appropriately treated with beta blockers or other appropriate um, interventions. Um, we have an ongoing prospective study looking at long QT patients with or without defibrillators um, called the LIVE uh, long QT study, and we'll learn, be learning more about that population as well. Um, that's for both athletes and non athletes, but we'll look at whether the um, more vigorous exercisers, uh, the hypothesis is that the more vigorous exercisers will not have a higher risk of arrhythmic endpoints than the sedentary amongst those appropriately you know, treated patients. So now to move over to the cardiomyopathy side of things, um, the most common cardiomyopathy and the most common in our uh, series was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I think um, we certainly have good data from our study that patients with defibrillators and HCM um, did well. There were no people who needed multiple shocks. There were no storms in that population. And so they, they all um, had a pretty uneventful course whether patients uh, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy without a defibrillator can participate safely. We really have no data at all. We know that HCM is a common cause of sudden death in um, people who are uh, previously healthy that we don't know about any diseases that they have. But whether that means that people who have... Uh, diagnosed hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's had a risk assessment. Do they need a defibrillator? Are they low risk? Are they high risk? And um, been uh, treated, taking appropriate precautions about maintaining hydration, that kind of thing. Whether those people will have a higher risk during sports, we just don't know. And we do have an ongoing study for that one as well, called Live HCM, where we're um, enrolling people from both the vigorous exercisers and athletes to the sedentary. Again, with the hypothesis that. Um, The vigorous exercises will not have a higher arrhythmic incidence, but we don't know the answer to that question yet, and that's really one of the the burning questions in this field is what about the low-risk patient with HCM and without a defibrillator? Now, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy is um, a whole different story because in that disease, uh, we do have some data, um, mostly from Hugh Hawkins' group at Hopkins, that the more exercise, particularly endurance exercise, that a person does over the course of their life, the earlier they're going to develop heart failure, the more likely it is they're gonna manifest heart failure, and the more likely it is they're gonna have arrhythmias. And so with the ARVC population, it's it's a different type of conversation because while the defibrillator, we did have a lot of ARVC patients in our our study. In our study, we didn't recommend exercise or not. We just said, if you're doing it, we wanna follow you. So we did have a fair number of these ARVC patients, and they did okay, but we were not able to look at the, um, whether the vigorous exercise these people were doing in, uh, worsened the progression of their underlying cardiomyopathy. And so I think the conversation with an ARVC patient is very different, even if they have a defibrillator, that while the defibrillator will work and prevent them from having sudden death, the data we have is certainly suggestive that um, continuing very vigorous exercise will worsen the myopathy.
0: Right. So this is some big changes, at least from what I'm comfortable with as a primary care sports medicine physician kind of doing pre-participation physicals and EKG screenings. So what would you say the, the standard of care is uh, these days with someone we make these diagnoses? And should we, if they've already been diagnosed and typically we'd be disqualifying them, should we involve an electrophysiologist to have these discussions and and discuss all the risks and benefits of potentially participating before we disqualify. Obviously, we're not gonna clear because I'm not qualified to do so. It's gonna be someone else who's giving me that recommendation. But what would your advice to be? Do we owe every athlete kind of this consultation?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that um, it's, it's even more than consultation, it's really working as a team. Uh, To care for these athletes so here at my university we do have a ECG screening program and basically the we the cardiologists read the ECGs the um, sports med physicians and and others over in the primary um, in the student primary care area um, are doing the histories and physicals of the incoming athletes and when there's something abnormal we will see them in, as the cardiologist if it's if it's something um, you know arrhythmic related. I'll see them if it's you know blood pressure, or aorta, whatever. Someone else will see them, um, and we then talk together. Um, we do. Uh, we really believe strongly in the shared decision making model, um, and really on all sides. So for me, so for example, at, at my university, we found several athletes with long QT. And what we've done is talk to the athlete and the family, make sure to get them on appropriate treatment. And then we start by talking to the athlete and the family about whether continuing to play is something they want to do. And we then um, are simultaneously speaking with the uh, sports med physician, Dr. Arliss Mayer, here as well. And then everyone together decides if they're comfortable allowing the patient to go back we've then had meetings um once um the physicians are are comfortable with it we've then had a meeting with uh, like the patient or the athlete uh the athlete's family depending on um, whether they you know the age of the athlete whether they want to come um the athlete their family and then the coaches and trainers so particularly the trainers, so that everyone is comfortable with the plan. The trainers have the opportunity to talk about, um, you know, get their questions answered, understand what's going on, what should they be looking for, so that we really see it as a team um, a team effort amongst all of the caregivers, um, you know, surrounding the athlete.
0: Uh, this is phenomenal. This is a, really a game changer for these athletes that would have previously been disqualified and that through... Wonderful intent, obviously, of the, the physicians uh, would have had a significant alteration in, in their lifestyle and potentially impact on their health down the road. So I, I thank you for looking into this. It's some unique research that was definitely needed to back up the recommendations we were giving our athletes. And I think it's it's very unique and, and worth bringing your research to the broader population.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate your interest uh, in the subject.
0: Uh, and one last question: What what are the next steps? Do you see what what are the timelines for uh, these next studies to come out? And, and where do you see this? If you had a crystal ball, what would you say you think we're going to be doing with these athletes? You know, five years from now.
1: Well, so I think uh, my studies for long QT and HCM they're like separate. They're parallel studies. Um, not not you know not enrolling the two diseases together. Right. We've just completed enrollment this year, January of 19, um, and so we'll be following the patients at least, well, well some of them have been followed for a while, uh, but we'll be following everyone for at least another year, year year, or two, and so we'll have some data probably in about three years. Um, those studies, again, are not series of athletes the way the other one was, but they're really comparative studies, and they will include patients without defibrillators, so we'll get um, hopefully some information on those. Um, I think there's a lot of diseases out there that we don't know about yet. And so I think there's other steps uh, that we'll need to take to start looking into some of the other cardiovascular uh, entities as well.
0: Well, once again, Dr. Lampert, I'd like to thank you for your time and expertise today. Uh, This has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm, I'm thrilled to bring you to the audience. I'd also like to thank you, the audience, for sharing your time with us. I hope you found this time useful and that you learned as much as I have. The views expressed are those of the speakers alone and don't necessarily represent the official policy or position of the AMSSM, the U.S. Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government.